The children were so loud all the time. They disturbed his sleep. They disturbed his work. They drove all of the game from the area. He was tired of their noise. A plan was formed. And late one night, when all of the children were tucked safely away in their beds, he barred the doors of the dormitories as quietly as a mouse. He snuck around the building, making sure the windows couldn't be opened. When he was sure the place was locked up tight, he poured lantern oil against the doors and windows. He struck a match and lit the oil. It didn't take long for the old structure to light. He stood back and watched as the flames consumed first the outer walls and soon spread into the orphanage. The children screamed even as the fire spread. Satisfied that he had eliminated the, the nuisance, he slipped quietly into the woods, back to his cottage, hoping that the quiet would follow. Almost forgot how to do this. <laughs> Welcome back to ANA Tall Tales. <laughs> Welcome back to ANA's Tall Tales. This is Andrea. And I'm Amanda. And we survived. We made it. We're back for another we tale. Uh we barely survived. I'm still barely surviving. It's fine. Life is great. Moving on. <laughs> oh man. Amanda and I both decided to get sick. And, um, not fun. Don't do it. No. Zero, don't, zero out of five stars. Zero out of ten stars. Don't. Not recommended. Yeah. So, I had Lyme disease, which, heck knows where I got that. I'm pretty sure it was when we were down in Hawking, but, because the timing is about right, but not recommended at all. Yeah. And then, strangely enough, so did my dad. Yeah, we were Lyme buddies. It was great. <laughs> Like all, all these years and I've never heard or known somebody in person personally that had it. And then you and dad at the same time. Yep. And I decided to go down with some sort of upper respiratory something that heck if I know, but we're all good now and we're back and we're back with Gore Orphanage. Which... I realized is kind of depressing. Like all these episodes are kind of depressing. This one is like kind of really depressing. This one is dark. It's really dark. Yeah. So if that's not for you, maybe stop listening now. Yeah. But it is one of the most notorious tales in Ohio. It even inspired a, a movie in 2015 a horror film believe it or not (laughs) but there's actually two movies i have written down really horror orphanage and the legend of gore orphanage i don't know if they're the same thing but i have i have two down so i don't know i only wrote down the one but safe to say we have not watched either of them (laughs) life's depressing enough as is i don't need to add horror movies to it oh (laughs) Horror movies are fine, but kids trapped in a building set on fire is it's not good. Yeah, not not even a little. The once again though, the interesting thing with this particular area 
is it is now part of the Mill Hollow Reservation area and it is open to the public. So yep. it's in Vermilion, Ohio, which is not that far from me. It's just, it's a heck of a story. It is. And the legend is so far removed from the truth. It blows my mind. Mine too. I almost had a hard time putting two and two together as I was reading about this. And then you read what actually happened and you're like, oh, that might actually be worse than the legend. (laughs) That's exactly the reaction I had. I was like, this is... This is more twisted and dark than the the story. But, I mean, again, reality is a strange thing. Mm-hmm. So do we start with the story? Yeah, let's start with the story. Why not? So the legend of Gore Orphanage started sometime in the late 1800s. There's about four different theories on what happened, but the one defining thing is that there was an orphanage run by a grumpy old man and it was located on it's like Gore Orphanage Road or Gore Road. Gore Road, yeah. And the first of the the theories was old man Gore himself, who was supposedly the owner of the orphanage. Depending on who you talk to, He either set the fire because he was trying to collect an insurance claim or because he hated children or a little bit of both. The second theory was that a disgruntled male employee, an unnamed man of shady character, had some sort of beef going on with the owner of the orphanage. A couple of different places mentioned that he had gotten fired. Another place had mentioned that he had gotten caught in a compromising position with one of the older girls. It's not really clear what kind of issue was had between the two of them. But this this theory says that he came back after being terminated from employment with the orphanage and set the place on fire out of revenge. Another of these theories is that an unnamed crazy vagabond, yes, that's a quote, that lived in the woods near the building hated the noise of the children. And so the only thing that he could see to gain his peace and quiet was to burn the orphanage down and get rid of the children for good. And then the most common thought and the least gory (laughs) Thought. I was going to say malicious. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I couldn't help myself. Um, yeah, the, let's, the least malicious of these theories was that it was just an accident. That one of the children knocked over a lantern and it started the fire. Or that there was a lantern in one of the barns and it got kicked over and the fire spread from the barn to the dormitories in the main building. Regardless of how you take your how the fire started, the legend has a fire in the orphanage starting. Um, They all basically have in common that none of the orphans escaped. No one survived. Mr. Gore's license to run an orphanage was completely taken away. No additional orphanages were allowed to be built on the site or near the site. And the townspeople would rather forget the incident, so they basically destroyed the rest of the buildings and left them abandoned. 
Yes. And in all of these theories, none of the orphans survived the fire, presumably. The town was done with having an orphanage in that location. They leveled the remaining pieces and parts of the structure or structures, depending on which story you hear, and allowed nature to reclaim the site. Even though they did that, it didn't take long for the the locals to start reporting experiences of ghosts. Some of those experiences, surprise, surprise, include children running and playing in the woods, ghost children screaming for help as they run and are on fire, smelling burning flesh, bright lights swirling and running through the woods, oftentimes accompanied by children's voices or screams, dark and shadowy shapes, possibly thought to be the guilty party who had started the fire, lurking around the foundation of the former main building of the orphanage. In recent years, there's been reports of cars parked near the site that would have small handprints appear on their windows, which gave me goosebumps. Fun stuff. Yeah. Definitely a spooky one. The thing with this one is it sounds pretty straightforward. It sounds like we're pretty much done, but you guys (laughs) know us by now. We are not. It is not. There are so many layers to this thing. Ugh. I always think it's interesting when a legend, especially a local legend, is taken and turned into a movie or some sort of play or something. And that seems like that has happened in almost every single one of these instances that we've covered so far. And so the movie that I have any information on, and I don't have a ton, is called Gore Orphanage. And it was an independent horror film that was filmed in 2015. It premiered at the Sandusky State Theater in July of 2015. It streams on Amazon right now. It was inspired by the actual legend, what we were just talking about. Most of the film took place, as far as the actual filming process, took place in Scottsdale, Pennsylvania, in a restored mansion. I guess from what I had read, the people that wrote and produced this film learned of this story and just could not believe that it had, it had never been adapted into a film since it lent itself so well to this genre. Yeah, they made the film. They released it. You can see it on Amazon still. It's... I don't, I don't like horror movies in any way, shape, or form, so I didn't do much more than just look at the artwork for it and everything. Um, but people seem to enjoy it. It's scary. I'll, I need to I need to watch it during Halloween. There are so many movies I need to watch during Halloween because of this <laughs> podcast. Uh. Yeah. So, I mean, it's... From what I could tell, the movie's based around a nine-year-old child who gets taken to the orphanage and the horrors of living in this orphanage and what they're required to do and how they're treated and the just general living amongst almost 200 children in a space that's not big enough to house 50. Yeah. Yeah. If you're into that kind of thing, it's, it's on Amazon. So now all of that being said, it gets weirder. So much weirder. Like the reality of this story surpasses the legend by far, in my opinion. 
Yes. So I don't know where to start because there's Light of Hope Orphanage, which is the actual orphanage. There's the Swift Mansion and then the Fire of Collinwood. So I have no idea where to start. Gore Orphanage Road or Gore Road was not named because of the orphanage. When people way back when were doing surveying, they made an error at the boundary line dividing Lorraine and Huron County. And the resolution to said area was to take a triangular shaped strip of land between the counties, which if anyone knows anything about sewing is why they're called gorts. Gore skirts is because they're triangle shaped pieces. Anyway, um, so they took a triangle shaped piece of land that's called a gore and that's why it's called Gore Road because there was a gore near the road. Yay! <laughs> I didn't actually find anything as to whether the whole term gory comes from this story or not, but I have my suspicions. This piece of land was part of uh, part of an estate bought by a man named Joseph Swift that covered over 400 acres of dense woods. And Joseph bought this land with the intentions to build this massive estate. Because of the size of the land and the lay of the land, the locals began to call the area Swift Hollow. Mr. Swift cleared this land over the course of 20 years. Once he got everything cleared, he began constructing his home in 1840. And this was not a home as in a cottage. This was a mansion. It featured stone pillars. It had 14 rooms. It had 15 foot ceilings. There was servant quarters. It was massive. It was over the top. It was beautiful. From 1840, the construction of Joseph Swift and his family lived in this property. They made their home there until 1874. Unfortunately, he made a series of bad investments that led to him having to sell the property. Don't invest in railroads. Yeah. Railroads, just not the same ones he did. He had the right ideas. He just, it wasn't executed well. As we talked about with the Moonville Tunnel, the railroads didn't really gain a lot of popularity until late 1800s, early 1900s. So he was right in the prime of investing in all of that and just didn't just execute a little too correctly. early. Yeah. Yeah. A man by the name of Nicholas Wilbur bought the mansion in the property in 1874. He moved his family into this property. It was, again, a massive mansion on 400 acres. It was uneventful for his family until 1893. So they had almost 20 years of paradise on this property. I don't know if anybody's ever been to that area, but it is a particularly beautiful piece of Ohio. Tragedy struck in January of 1893. There was what is assumed to be a diphtheria epidemic that swept through northeastern Ohio. And unfortunately, Wilbur's family was caught up in the middle of it. His grandchildren, there was three of them. I'm sorry, there's four of them. uh, Jesse, Ruby, Roy, and May. They did not survive this epidemic. From what I could tell... The children did not die in the actual mansion. They were at a family friend's farm in Berlin Heights. From 
the newspaper articles I found and they were buried at a nearby cemetery in Maple Grove. So their deaths did not happen at the property, but there's rumors, mind you, keep in, keep in mind, this is 1893. What was going on during all of that time? I was going to say, you missed a couple key points in my end. (laughs) Joseph Swift, the guy who built the mansion, two of his children died. One before construction was complete and then one after. And then Nicholas Wilbur was a huge spiritualist who loved doing seances and conjurings and summonings and trying to contact said dead children. Yes. Well, from what I had found, Joseph Swift's children hadn't died on the property. But the Wilburs, they... um. Rumors in the community flew that Nicholas and his mm-hmm. wife held seance after seance in attempt to get in touch with the ghosts of, of the grandchildren and children. Now, I'm not sure I didn't find anything that mentioned the actual parents of these grandchildren, what happened to them. But considering that most of the, the rumors said that they were trying to contact the children and grandchildren... It doesn't sound like anybody survived except for the the older of the generation there. So that's, I mean, just, just that alone. Kind of weird yeah. and spooky. But that was a big thing in that area. I mean, that was yeah. entertainment on a huge level. It was extremely popular for mediums and psychics to travel and do shows and help families contact the their loved ones and things and a lot of it we know now was a big scam but it was all the rage in that era uh i am going to title drop another podcast here if you're interested in learning more about that there is ghost church by jamie loftus loftus and she goes to Florida where the like spiritualist headquarters is. And she goes through all the history of all of it. And it is fascinating. Ooh, that's cool. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. All this, this tragedy hits and the Wilbers are done with the property. Yes. They abandon it completely. They bought this beautiful mansion and instead of selling it, they're just like, let's let it rot, which is awful to me. But because of the rumors of the deaths of the children and all the spiritualist stuff that went on, teenagers immediately went, oh, it's haunted and started using it as like a test of courage sort of spot where they'd dare each other to go and see if they could spend an hour in the spooky mansion or whatever. What? Yep. Okay, so I dug into county records because I know how to. (laughs) It's fun. Anyway, um, so I actually found that the Wilbur family sold the property to a family by the name of Sutton. Oh. In 1895. The Sutton family only owned the property for about seven years. And they never actually moved into the property, from what I could tell. They were too afraid of all of the the talk of ghosts and things going on out there. And when they did spend time out at the property, there was a lot of strange going-ons that they couldn't really find a logical explanation for. In 1902, just seven years after they bought the property, 
they sold the property to Reverend Sprunger as part of his orphanage, which is where <laughs> the crazy kind of settles in for me. <laughs> yeah. So in I the only thing left on the Swift Mansion I have is in 1923, Vandals lit the building on fire and it was burned to the ground. Yes. But in between this time and again in 1902, a man by the name of Reverend Johann Sprunger and his wife Katarina <laughs> bought the property and the surrounding property. It was something like 500 acres that they bought, but Swift Mansion was part of what they bought. Now, there was, I believe, something like four to six farm buildings that they had in this purchase that they turned into the orphanage. The Sprungers are bizarre people. They are. So they came from Bern, Indiana. Yeah. Uh, where they owned an orphanage. Oh, it's even better eight, than that. In 1899, it burnt down mm -hmm. and three girls died. Yeah. Two other businesses that they owned, both in Indiana, were also burnt to the ground. And prior to moving to Ohio, the couple had two children. The youngest, a son, didn't survive childbirth. But the older one, at seven years old, died of an unknown cause. And... This is where it's unclear if there was something off about this couple to begin with, or if losing their children and these businesses birthed Caused them this... to go a little crazy. Yeah. So, and I mean, it's, it's understandable in a way. And that's, that's rough. Yeah. However... Does not excuse... Exactly. So, and the reason that there's this supposition about the losing the businesses and the children causing some sort of mental break with the two of them is because in, in Indiana, in the beginning of Sprunger building these businesses, he was known as a very, he was a very well-respected businessman in the area. People came to him for advice. People came to him and wanted to buy into his businesses. He was very successful. He was very respected. And then he lost one business to a fire. They got an insurance claim from that. They rebuilt the business back on the same spot. Not long after, lost the business to another fire, which was not insured. And they got into the orphanage scene at that point. And then shortly after that, this orphanage burnt to the ground. And they got an insurance payout for that. And then they lost their children. And they're like, you know what? We're, we're moving out of the area. The other thing about them that just is weird. And I don't know. Because nobody seems to know. But Reverend Sprunger, his wife, when they got married, her maiden name was also Sprunger. Yeah. So. Which is <laughs> very interesting. I'm not sure if it's just one of those that it was a very common name in that area and they weren't related at all, you know, like, like Smith, but kind of strange, kind of very strange, especially because it seems like it's a guarded secret. And there was talk from people that had worked at the orphanage in Ohio that 
they referred to the reverend and his wife as brother and sister Sprunger, which could just be a religious thing, too. Yeah. But there's just some weird stuff surrounding it. Just a little bit. So after losing their businesses, after losing their children, they needed a change. And the Sprungers moved to Ohio where they purchased a new orphanage site on just under 550 acres outside of Vermilion. And guess what was located on that property? The abandoned Swift Mansion. The Swift Mansion! Yay! Yeah. Part of what is interesting about the legend versus reality is the legend talks like the orphanage was where Swift Mansion's remains are now. If you visit the site now, where a lot of people see and experience these these hauntings is actually at the remains of the Swift Mansion, which is not where the orphanage was. The orphanage was located on the same property, but it was there was several, depending on what source you read, four to six buildings that had been converted and built by Sprunger for the orphanage specifically. They never housed children or did anything inside the abandoned mansion. No, they did not. Completely unrelated. Yeah. Not only was Sprunger running a mansion, which was called, of all things, the Orphanage of Light and Hope. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they, they housed up to 120 children at a time. That In four buildings, I can't imagine. That the state knew of. Yeah. Let me preface it with that this or followed up with that the state knew of. So they opened it with good intentions. They wanted an orphanage. They wanted a self-sustaining religious community. There were chapel rooms and religious ceremonies. There was a small printing press for school books and newspapers. Like there was cattle and fields of, you know, like corn and stuff to harvest and feed everybody. So it was all well-intentioned on the surface. But it was not good. But then you listen to the children and it was not. Things like there was never enough food. Go figure. A lot of the children tried to escape by wading through the Vermilion River. They were not only abused and or neglected, but they were used as basically slave labor, which we also saw that with the poor house with Annie Oakley. So mm-hmm. fairly common in that era doesn't make it right. Despite the fact that they had a plethora of cows and pigs and chickens that they could get good meat from, they were fed calves lungs, hogs heads, the meat of sick and dying cattle, and corn that was boiled in the same pots they used to boil their soiled underwear. Yeah. If they were fed at all. Though they had all of these cattle and everything, a lot of the children reported that they never had things like butter or milk. So that was all being sold to the the surrounding towns in an effort to support the orphanage. And Mm -hmm. it just wasn't working. (laughs) Rooms were infested with rats. They would bite the children while they slept. There was one bathtub 
children got baths once every two weeks and the water was never changed. Yeah. Uh, orphans would be bound out to neighboring farms, which, if you don't remember from the Annie Oakley episode, is basically where we'll give you our child to do stuff like collect milk from the cows in exchange for cash or schooling or whatever. And illnesses and disease were never treated. They were prayed away. And it went on for not that long, but too long. So the yeah. orphanage opened in 1903, and six years later, in 1909, the state of Ohio was like, uh, maybe we should investigate up here. Now, mind you, at the time, there was no regulation on anything like this. Anybody could open and run an orphanage. There was no standard of living, standard of care. There was no oversight by the state. Though they investigated and they found a lot of things to be lacking, there was really nothing that they could do about it. Even when the Sprungers admitted to a lot of the allegations that had been raised. So this is shortly before this investigation is when the fire in a, a adjacent town took place. And it, it was bad. <laughs> Pretty gruesome. So... Fire of Collinwood is what I have this section titled in my notes. Um, so 40 miles east of Vermilion is a little place called Collinwood. A school filled with 176 students was burnt to the ground. All of them were burned or either trampled at the time. All 176 of them. At the time, a janitor was accused for starting the fire, but he had four children of his own. In the school so whether or not it actually was him is up for debate the thing with this is it sounds quite a lot like the gore orphanage legend while a lot of people relocated from collinwood to vermilion where light of hope and swift mansion are so theory is is they transposed legends yeah because from what I could find, there was never actually a fire at the orphanage. No. There was a fire at Sprunger's orphanage in Indiana, too. So I can see where, oh, yeah, one of his orphanages burned. And then, oh, there's this horrific tale of a, a fairly close town in Vermilion that also had horrific burn legend to it. I can see where that would get transposed. Oh yeah, very easily. The closing of the light, what is it called? <laughs> the Orphanage of, of Light and Hope. Yeah. It happened shortly after the investigation with the state of Ohio. Sprunger died. Very shortly after that, the doors of the orphanage were closed for good. That happened in 1916. Partially because of extreme financial troubles. The, the property was bought by another family man. And he was like, I'm not doing the orphanage thing. I'm sorry. This is not a good idea. And took the 540 something acres and leased it out to local farmers. And before selling the land. The, there's one structure that remains on the property 
and that's all that's left of the orphanage and the mansion. The kids from the orphanage, they went home. They went back to their relatives, to their guardians. They dispersed throughout the community if they didn't have anywhere to go to home. And for them, it was a nightmare that had finally ended. They, a lot of the stories of what actually happened at the orphanage were lost because these children were far too traumatized traumatized to talk about it. it. Yeah. So, and and I mean, how, how could you not be? Yeah. There was a handful of children that didn't have anywhere else to go. And they did from all reports, go back to burn Indiana with Mrs. Sprunger. The entire time frame of the light and of light and hope orphanage lasted exactly 13 years. Yeah. I got goosebumps when I read that, by the way. So again, this is now part of a public, I don't want to say park. It's a reservation area. Mm-hmm. I guess it's part of the park system. So people can go and they can explore. It's open until dark. The most accessible ruins are actually of Swift Mansion, which I don't know. All the seances and stuff held there might explain a lot. Yeah. But it's not not the site of a gruesome mass murder of children. It's worse. Well, thankfully, yep. there's there's nowhere on the property that's actually a mass yeah. burning of over 100 children. But it, it's a bizarre tale. It, it really, really is. It really is. Jinx. (laughs) (laughs) I owe you a few. Now, again, with Swift's mansion, like Amanda was saying, it it became a a place for teenagers to hang out. And I really think that had a lot to do with the Sutton family when they bought it, not moving in. Like, oh, yeah. Could you imagine just hearing the tales of this magnificent property that you you bought and you go out there and there's just things that keep happening and that are unexplainable. And you know, in the back of and your mind that it's it was, teenagers, but yeah, is it really, especially yeah. like, you know, it's probably just teenagers, but you've heard all these stories and everything of this family that spent years trying to contact their, their dead loved ones. And, you know, what does that bring into an area and, and all that? It is interesting because there's part of the legend surrounding the actual story of what happened involves Reverend Sprunger still wandering around the grounds of the orphanage, even though he was buried back in his home in Indiana and his wife never returned after his death. So I think that's interesting. And also the amount of people that report seeing the ghosts of children that are on fire. I just don't understand where that would come from. Yeah. Unless it's just stories being made up. I, I have to assume that that's all that is, but I don't know. I've never been. Yeah. I was supposed to go once, but never happened. (laughs) It's still there. I know. It's just so far North. Yeah. So far North. There's so many places that would be interesting to to go and visit. And we keep saying that. And then summer's almost over already. I know. Don't remind me. 
Uh, I'm not complaining about this fall weather. Like, oh, it's gorgeous. If we could have this year round, I would be a happy camper. Just saying. Mm-hmm. So, y'all know the drill here. If you have stories about Gore Orphanage, if you have stories about Light and Hope Orphanage, if you have stories about the Swift Mansion, let us know. Or any other stories, please. Yes. Facebook, email, Instagram. Instagram, yeah. See, now you owe me a soda. (laughs) (laughs) We'll call it even. Yeah, not sorry. So get us your stories, and what are we doing next time, Miss Amanda? Next time, we are doing Rogue's Hollow. I love how I say next time, like it's not something we're going to record right now. Shh, they don't need to know we're double recording. (laughs) We got to catch up at some point. We do have to catch up at some point. We're trying, you guys, we promise. We're feeling good. We're back to it. We promise. I even have my sassy pants on. And seeing as how we are double dropping this episode and Rogue's Hollow, it's not really a surprise. So we will see you guys in probably like five minutes. Heck yeah. Talk to you in five minutes. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> this has been A&A Tall Tales, an independently written, recorded, and produced podcast. Our intro sounds are Crackling Fireplace by Julius H., and Nightwoods by Widget Studios. Our intro song is Harmonica Solo by Julius H. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only.